0: We're discussing Takanat Usha. We learned already that from the letter of the law, a woman who owns property, field, or slaves, uh, that she brings into the marriage as Melog, meaning she retains ownership of it. Now, during the marriage, the husband can get the produce. That's his right for, uh, to, to take the produce of the field or whatever the slave uh, does or makes, goes to the husband, but she ownership rights such that upon divorce or his death she gets the land back as is whether it's worth more or less she gets it back as is now from the letter of the law um, if she dies first then the husband inherits the property if during the marriage the woman decides that she's going to sell the land um. So the original law before the Takana is she has a right to do so, and that sale is valid, and she takes the money and she can do whatever she wants with it. However, the rabbis at Usha decided not so, Um. since at the beginning of the marriage, the husband had the expectation that he's going to enjoy the fruits and that he will inherit the land. Um, if she dies first or the property or the slaves, um, So then since that is his expectation, um, therefore, the rabbis do not want the woman to sell that uh, property during the marriage. And therefore they say if she does sell the mar- sell the property, the husband has a right to go to the buyers and take it back. Um, so basically she can't really cannot really sell the property. That is Takanat Usha. There is some discussion about whether this enactment ever really existed or whether it really applies, and that's where we begin our discussion. It seems that the whether or not there is such an enactment at Usha is a machloket Tanaim between the following two contradictory ve'lo La Isha. The first baraita says that if a woman brings slaves into a marriage and uh, someone knocks out the tooth um, or eye of the slave or any other limb that is not going to grow back. Now the general law is only if the owner knocks out the tooth of the slave then the slave goes free. If a third party knocks out the tooth of the slave, the slave does not go free. We're talking about evit Kena'ani. So the question here is who is the real owner? Uh, the first opinion says that if the husband, both opinions agree that if the husband knocks out the tooth; nothing. The slave does not go free. So both Baraita do not recognize the husband as the full owner. The question is about the wife. The first uh, Badaita says that um, if the wife knocks out the tooth or eye of the slave, then the slave does go for, go, go free, but not if the husband does. And the other Badaita said, not the husband and not the wife. If either one of them knock out the the uh, limb of the slave the slave does does not go free we're going to see four explanations for this machloket the first one is as follows the first explanation is that everyone agrees that ownership over produce is not like ownership of over the item itself that explains why the husband, who only has ownership over the produce, right, whatever the a slave will produce, is not an owner of the slave itself. And therefore, everyone agrees that if the husband knocks out the Slave's tooth. The slave will not go free. What is the machloket between them regarding the wife? It's based on this. The first, uh, the first badaita that says that if the wife knocks it out, the slave does go free. He does not think that there ever was a takana of usha. What's the connection? Well, just like from the letter of the law, before the Takana, without the Takana, the wife is allowed to sell the slave, so she has full ownership rights since, since she can sell the slave any time. Therefore, if she knocks out the tooth, the slave goes free. Whereas the second B'nai says, even if the wife knocks out the tooth, the slave does not go free, that, it must be that that opinion thinks that there is an enactment at Usha. And just like the wife cannot sell the slave, and if she tries to sell a slave, the husband can go and get it back. So, she does not have full ownership rights. Therefore, same con- consequence of that. If she knocks out the tooth of the own, of the slave, the slave does not go free because she is not considered fully the owner. So, it seems that um, whether there is a takana or not is, the, uh, is what uh, differentiates these two uh, badaitot. That's explanation number one. But then we reject it. We want everybody to be on the same page. And everybody can agree that there is such an enactment. Elakan kodem takana hartakana. The first Braita was taught before the enactment was instituted. Uh Usha, a city in the in the Galilee where the Sanhedrin gathered, but there were already Tanaim teaching things beforehand. And so Before the Takana, the woman has full ownership of the slave and can sell it, and therefore knocks out the tooth, the slave slave goes free. And the second B'nai is taught after the Takana, when the woman does not have the right to sell the slave, and therefore is not the full owner, and if she knocks out the tooth, the slave does not go free. A third interpretation. Here again, uh, according to the third explanation, everybody agrees that there is a Takana, and both B'nai are taught, after the takana element isha velo so according to the uh, to that we have to explain the first bita Our second bita is evident the wife cannot Sell and therefore cannot the slave does not go free. But the first one, why would she have the right to, um, uh, to why would the slave go free, go go free if she knocks out the tooth if the wife does not have the right to sell the slave? Sounds like she's not the owner. And the answer is uh, the first one is happened, uh, is following is an agreement with the rule of Rava said that in the following three cases um, a lien on an object gets undone. Uh, a one, The first one is hikdesh Let's say I owe you money and I say, um, listen, and uh, uh, I'm, I want to take this this animal here. You have a lien on the animal. If I don't pay you in time, you can come and collect this animal. And you, you agree. Fine. So now you have a lien on the animal. In the meantime, I go ahead and I make this animal hikdesh I'm going to bring this animal as a korban. So what happens? It becomes a korban. It becomes hekdesh, and now you cannot take it anymore. Your lien is undone, right? And I have a right to do that. We don't say that. Well, you already have a lien on it, and just like I can't make hekdesh your animal, you might think I cannot make hekdesh an animal that you have a lien on. But davas is not so. I can make it hekdesh, and you lose your lien. Same thing with hametz. If I owe someone money and I tell them, listen, this uh, hametz here, this bread will be a lien. You have a lien on it, and then uh, Pesach comes, and now the hametz is valueless it cannot no one can benefit from it it can't be even bought or sold So now, um, the the lien is on an object that is worthless, so the lien goes away. Uh, The prohibition of hametz uh, removes the lien. And the third one, which is relevant to us, is shichirur. If I owe you money and I say, here, you have a lien on this slave, and then I free the slave. The slave goes free and your lien is abrogated. We don't say that, oh, you have a lien on it, so therefore the slave cannot go free. So all these things that undo it. What's the connection to this? connection here is that uh, we're talking about after Takanat Usha, so therefore the wife that brings the slave Melog into the marriage cannot sell the slave. That's true, but if this if she sets the slave free, See, the husband has a lien on the slave, right? Basically he's saying, I can use the slave and I get the slave after you die, I get to inherit it. So the husband has a lien on it. So uh, since he has a lien, the wife, just like um, uh, a borrower, cannot uh, sell. I mean, you could, a borrower can sell uh, land that has a lien on it, but the lender can go and take it back. Uh, from there, so uh, the lien remains. Uh, But uh, just like here, um, just like in Rava's case, if I owe you money and you have a lien on my slave, I cannot set the slave free. So too here, the husband has a lien on the slave of the wife. Now the wife can't sell it, but she can set it free. So if she knocks out the tooth of the slave, the slave automatically goes free and that undoes the lien of the husband. And that explains the first braita. Why where oh, the why the husband who only has man, uh, a, a produce does not own the slave. So if the husband knocks out the eye, will not go free. But if the wife does, the way it goes free and undoes the lien. Good. That explains the first braita. Now, what about the second braita? Lema ehi. We're gonna say that the second braita disagrees with rava. And thinks that even if um, uh, the, uh, the the person uh, uh, sets the slave free, the slave does not go free because there's a lien on it. And here, um, uh, the the wife who knocks out the tooth, the slave will not go free because the husband has a lien. Does every, does, is there anybody that disagrees with Ravah? We say no. In fact, even the author of the second Braita would agree with the statement of Ravah. And in a general case, if someone lets the slave go free, the lien is abrogated. However, in this case of the Takana of Usha, the rabbis made the lien of the husband very strong, stronger than a usual lien, so strong in fact that if the wife would set the, let the slave go free or knock out the slave's tooth, the lien still overpowers and remains and the slave remains beholden to the husband who can um, who still still owns the slave, and therefore um, the slave does not go free um, in, uh, if, if either the husband or the wife um, knock the tooth out. That, all that is the third explanation. And the fourth and final explanation of the difference between these two baraitot. <clears> the <throat> last opinion is that none of these tana'im think that there is a takana of usha and therefore the wife really she could um, sell the slave um, if she wants to so what is the machloket the machloket is whether um, ownership of produce is equivalent to ownership of the item itself uh, such that according to the first baraita that says that the wife can uh, it, that, that the slave goes free if the wife um, uh, sets if the wife knocks out the tooth thinks that the husband has zero connection to the slave, the husband only owns the produce, but ownership of produce is not like ownership of the item itself, and therefore we leave him out of it. The the wife is the primary and uh, really she is basically the owner, and therefore, if she said, if she knocks out the tooth, the slave goes free. The second beraita, however, thinks that kinyan perot is kinyan haguf, and therefore the husband, who has his ownership of the produce, is a partial owner of the slave. For that reason, if she knocks out the tooth the slave does not go free because the husband partially owns the body of the slave. And similarly, if the husband um, knocks, out, knocks it out, everyone would agree that the slave does not go free because the wife certainly has some ownership over the slave. And so that is the essence of their makhloket. It has nothing to do with takanat usha. Now this machloket, whether kenyan perot is kenyan haguf, ownership of produce, is that if you, can, if you have the right to use something, Do you have ownership over the item itself? That is subject to actually a four-way machloket that we're going to see in the following. You have someone who owns a slave and he sells it to someone else. But the seller... Um, says, I want to use the slave for the next 30 days. I'm selling it to you from now, so you own the slave from today. Um, but for the next 30 days, the slave is going to remain in my house, and I get to use the slave however I want, and after 30 days, then, you, uh, then the, 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 everything the slave does will be yours. So here we have a situation where the seller owns the produce of the slave, we've, even though the buyer owns the body of the slave. Now, Rabbi Meir says, "Rishon, yeshno bedin yom O yomaim." Me'pineshu tachtav, kasabad, kinyan perod, k'kinyan ha-guf The following four we machloket is going to be related to the following halacha. The Torah states in Shemot Kaf Aleph. Um, if an owner kills his slave in Eved Kena'ani, then the owner gets the death penalty. This itself is quite amazing that one gets a death penalty for killing a Canaanite slave. Um, uh, but here's the relevant law. However, if the owner hits the slave and the slave does not die right away, but lives for 24 hours and only dies after 24 hours. The yom or yomaim, one day or two days, means a 24-hour period from, let's say, it was 3 p.m. to 3 p.m. the next day. So that's one day, but it can over overlap two days. Um, then the owner does not get the death penalty. This is a special special dispensation, a leniency to an owner of a slave, and is not true of anybody else. If someone else would go and and uh, hit a person. Uh, a free person, a slave whatever and the that person even though they don't die right away right away but they get worse and worse They never get better um, they get worse and when they die after two days They're, that the, the 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 one who hits is liable for capital punishment. Um, it doesn't matter that the person died, that the victim died two, two days later. They never got better. Okay, that's the general law. However, a special leniency for an owner of a slave who hits the slave will get death penalty if the slave dies soon. But after 24 hours, the owner does not get the death penalty because it is his. Property. That's the law. Now, the relevance to us is who is the real owner? So, to be says, right, we're talking about a case where um, one guy sold a slave to another so that the, ba- the seller owns, uh, can use the slave for 30 days, has Kenyan Perot, but the buyer has Kenyan Haguf. So, who is the real owner that would get this uh, special dispensation? To says, it's the first one, it's the seller. He gets the special leniency of Yom or Yomayim. Why? Because the slave is physically in his possession, and he has a right to use it for these thirty days. So, to be made clear,ly thinks that Kenyan Perot, Kenyan Perot is Kenyan Hanguf. Whoever can use the slave is the owner for the application of the. Um, if that, if the, if that um, first sell, the seller would hit the slave, and he would die um, only after two days. The, uh, that owner is not liable. But the second guy, if he hit him and died with, after two days, would be liable, capital punishment. That's to be Meir's opinion. Rebi Uda Omer, Rabbi says, no, only the buyer, the second owner, the buyer, um, has the law of Yom O If he hits the slave and he doesn't die right away, but only after two, uh, two days, Then the second guy, the buyer, does not get the death penalty, but the first one would. So he must think that the ownership over produce is not ownership. And therefore, the first guy who only owns the, the produce of the slave is not the real owner. The second one is because he is the, he actually owns the right that he owns the body of the slave third opinion to be osel mention ahem yesnan bedin yom o yomaim ze mipne shu takta ve ze mipne shu kaspo besape kale kenan perati ke kenan ne ilaf ke kenan goftame usfek nefshot lakel beosel says both of them both the buyer and the seller um well be included under the under this law if either of them strikes the slave and he doesn't die within 24 hours, both of them will not be liable. Why? Uh, one of them because he, the, the seller uh, the, the, is because the slave is physically in his possession and he's using him, and the buyer because he has ownership over him. Um, now, Rebiyose actually is in Sefeq. He's in doubt whether is Kenyan Perot like Kenyan or not, so he's not sure if the first owner who has that, who owns the produce um, is really the owner or not, but since we're in Sefeq, and we're talking about capital punishment, so anytime you have a doubt, in the case of capital punishment, we're going to be lenient, and therefore either of these two people will not get the death penalty. Nebi <speaking in Hebrew> <speaking in> Eliezer <Hebrew> says the opposite. Neither of them have the benefit of the leniency of yom or yomayim. If either the seller or the buyer strikes the slave and he dies eventually, even if after two days, both of them would deserve the capital punishment. Why? Because neither of them are the owner, um, uh, the first one, the, uh, the, 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 the buyer, because the, owner, the, the slave is not right now, not in his physical possession. He can't use it. And the seller, because he doesn't own it, he, he ha, can use the produce, but doesn't actually own it. And therefore, Be Eliezer says, only someone who fully owns all the um, the rights to the slave um, can get the special dispensation, but not someone who has any only partial ownership. Good. Amarava, Be amar ki What's the source for the Eliezer? Says because it is his money. Um, uh, only someone who is, it's, it's his exclusive property can get the special dispensation but if he shares uh, ownership even if he's the owner of the whole body but someone else has the produce or vice versa or even partners as we're about to see in a second um, if there is any shared ownership then this um, this law will not apply who would be the author of the following statement um, uh, that Amemar says that if a husband or wife sell property that she brought into the marriage, the sale is invalid. The author is uh, the follows. Amemar's uh, so statement here is following to be Iliazad, who similarly would say that in order to sell something, you need uh, the uh, the agreement and um, um, and, uh, and, and, and joint action of all of the owners. But here, if either the husband or the wife separately sell a slave, well, the husband only owns the produce. The wife only sells the, uh, the body of it, but the, the husband owns the produce, so neither of them can sell an item alone man tanalhad tanurbanan who is the author of the following baraita mi shekh yeshu aved rach suy ben khudin laken aved shirshna shutafin en yosin be la shevarim she'anan huzrin saman who is half a slave how can you be half a slave? Well, may, you might have been owned by two partners and one of the partners freed the slave. Um, uh, or someone who is owned uh, by, uh, by, by two partners um, does not go free, such an evid Kanani will not go free by the loss of his eye or his tooth or any of the extremities that, um, don't grow, that uh, will, not, will not grow back. Um, uh, um, uh, so who is the author of this? Um, of this, Eli Iitah, because um, only if someone is fully the owner of a, of a slave, then the law is applied to him. We saw, already saw that, saw, said that regarding capital punishment if a person dies after, um, after two days, and so he would say the same thing here. The law that a slave goes free by knocking out his, um, uh, his limb, um, only applies to someone who is the entire uh, master, but this guy is owned by two masters, or half of, only half of him is owned by a master, and therefore uh, he does not go free. kaspo abdo Why would that be? Rabbi Eliezer, regarding the law of uh, capital punishment, said kaspo, because he owns him only. Someone who has uh, who owns him fully. Um, so to here um, doesn't say Kaspar but it says the word Avda because it is his slave. So it has to be someone who is his slave uniquely that uh, that he owns the full slave and no one own, no one else owns any part of the slave. Only then if he knocks out the, the uh, limb, would the slave go free? So this is also the opinion of Rabbi Eli Ezer. Next, Mishnah. Rabbi someone who punches another, there's different opinions about what tokea is, but one of the opinions is he punches them has to pay one selah. This is what we're talking about for embarrassment. There would also be payment if there, if there was, uh damage for the other uh, things and ripui um, uh, and shebet uh, for whatever else. But we're focusing now on embarrassment. How embarrassing is it to get punched? Uh, one Selah according to Tanakamah. Rabbi Elias uh, says in the name, Rabbi Uda says in the name of Rabbi Osei Galilee, 100 Zuz. Sit Tzitaro noten lo matayim Zuz, lachariyado noten lo alba meot Zuz. If someone slaps someone else on the cheek, slapping, you see, is more embarrassing than punching, so, than getting punched. Um, even though the damage from a punch might be more than a slap, a slap doesn't necessarily, it doesn't usually cause a lot of damage, um, but it is very ambas- publicly embarrassing Such a, for, just for such a thing. So if someone slaps someone else, they have to pay 200 zoos. If you slap someone with the back of your hand, it's even more insulting and you have to pay 400 zoos. And again, the injury or the, 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 uh, the pain uh, will, will not be very great. Um, but the, the uh, shame is greater. If someone pulls someone else's ear or pulls his hair and if it spits at someone, then the spit reaches and touches the, that person, the victim. Or if you take off someone's cloak from, uh, from, from, uh, uh, from them and you, you leave them without clothes on in public. Or if someone goes and uncovers the head of a woman in the marketplace. All these are very shameful. Again, most of them, uh, these do not cause physical pain or permanent injury or anything like that. The main thing is the embarrassment. So what do you have to pay for boshet? All these things are very, very embarrassing to be made naked in public, or for a woman's hair to be uncovered in public, or spat upon. All these are 400 Zouz. Now, here's one opinion here that says, the rule is it goes according to a person's honor level. Um, if a person is very important aristocrat, then it'll be more and, and they get spat upon. It's going to be more shame. They're going to feel more shame than someone who's uh, from a low class who gets spat upon, who also feel shame, but not as much. Now, um, we're going to discuss on the following daf, these these amounts here, the 400, is that for the high class or is that for the low class? Right, Because the Mishnah here gave one amount, it sounds like one amount for everybody, and here it's saying, well, it depends on what class you are. Okay, but that's one opinion. Rabbi Akiba disagrees. Rabbi Akiba says a beautiful statement. Even the poorest uh, um, among among Israel, we consider them as if they are aristocrats that that lost their money. Who? Uh, they're still still aristocrats, and therefore their shame is still going to be a high amount. Why should we treat all uh, Jews like that? Because all Jews are the sons of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and just by that lineage, they are nobility. And therefore, even if a person happens to be poor now, doesn't matter. Good person could be poor, but they could still be noble because they come from noble, uh, a noble, noble lineage. And therefore, Rabbi Akiba disagrees with the with this kelal that it goes by a person's honor. He democratizes um, all, everyone from the Jewish nation is treated like nobility, and one has to pay uh, this uh, a higher amount. So the Bi'akibah is going to be a lot more machmir on the per, on the perpetrator of the shame. Um, that uh, you have to treat everybody, all Jews, equally which is just a very very beautiful idea and a story of someone who came and he uncovered the head of a woman in the marketplace Um, they got into some scuffle whatever and he publicly embarrassed her and so the woman came to Rabbi Akiva to be a judge and Rabbi Akiva says you uncovered her hair in public you caused her shame 400 zoos you have to pay. The, the assailant said, I need a little time to pay. Can't pay right now. Uh, so says, okay, you have some time. So this guy, wise guy, look what he did. He waited uh, in front of her courtyard until she would come out. And then he took a jug of oil and broke it in front of her and inside the jug was only a very small amount of oil that spilled on the floor. What did this woman do? She was she had her hair covered. She tore off her own hair covering and she put her hands on the on the floor to to lap up the oil and put the oil on her head so it, it shouldn't go to waste right? in other words you see that this woman herself was very willing to cause shame upon herself and to dishevel her her to dishevel, dishevel her head um, and take off remove just for a few cents of oil that she wanted to um, use that was on the floor so this woman you see is not a nobility she her shame is very well is is worth cheap And therefore, he said, I should not have to pay so much. This guy, this was all entrapment. He had witnesses watching this whole scene. And the witnesses came to the Biakiva and said, yes, we saw her just to pick up a few cents of oil. She... Uncovered her own head. So how much does how much does she care? So the guy said to that person like this: "I have to pay four hundred zoos." I understand if I would go and dishevel the princess, uh, then I would have to pay four hundred zoos in public. I caused her a great embarrassment. But this woman, she doesn't care about her own shame. I shouldn't have to pay so much. Ama lo, lo, amarta says your argument is worth nothing. Ha chobel patur. bo says, um, Rabbi Akiva said, uh, there's a general law if someone injures himself even though you're not allowed to injure yourself you're not allowed to go and gash yourself or cut off your limb you're not allowed but if a person does you don't, ha- you don't have to pay who are you going to pay yourself? um uh, and so even though a person is allowed to injure himself if someone else injures the injures uh, you they have to pay and the same thing is here even though she is not allowed to dishevel herself and, un- and uncover her head and cause herself shame she should not do that okay but that's her problem if she decides that she wants to dishevel herself and cause herself shame oh, well she doesn't have to she doesn't have to pay anybody but even though she doesn't mind being ashamed like that and she would shame herself for a little bit of oil. Nevertheless, someone else who does it um, is not allowed. right? If someone likes to bang themselves on the, on the head, so they bang themselves on the head all day, well, they don't get paid. If you go bang them on the head, then you have to pay, right? Even though they were doing it anyway themselves. Doesn't matter. And the same thing is true if someone cuts down his own young trees. This is not permitted. Bar you're not allowed to destroy. Nevertheless, if you own them, you don't have to pay anybody because you're destroying your own property. But if someone else comes and destroys your trees, then they do have to pay you for damages. And therefore, it makes no difference the fact that she... This woman is not so careful about her own honor, the fact that you caused her dishonor, that you shamed her. And she is, even if she's poor, but she is from the children of Hamizaki HaKob. She is like nobility that, uh, that fell, fell on hard times, but you have to treat her like nobility and pay her the 400 zoos. Okay, amazing Mishnah question when we set up here that someone who punches someone else nebio thought that you have to pay a hundred a hundred what what kind of denomination is it the tyrian coins which are a higher amount that that was the the capital the main center where they used uh coins that were of a stronger denomination or is it the local uh dinar which is an only an eighth of the value of the Tyrian dinar. So 100 what? 100 Tyrian dinarim or 100 of the local um, dinarim. That's the question. The answer is Tashima. We can learn the answer from the story of someone who punched his friend, and they came to the the grandson of the as a to be a judge. And he says, Here I am, and here is the Biosag Lee. That's a curious statement. We'll see two interpretations of what that means. Anyway, he, the point is he's saying, I'm following it to be and therefore you have to pay a hundred? Tyrian coins, so we can learn from here that it's the higher amount of 100 Tyrian coins. Now, what does this phrase mean? My hai ana ha de biose. ha ga, says this is I and this is r be What did he mean by that? Ila leh ma ha, hi, kamale, ha ana de suri zil dayan But the one the first interpretation is ha-ana means I, here I am, I saw you. I saw you punch him. I am a witness to the fact that you punched them. So, I'm going to serve as a witness, and here, behold, we have a Biyosag Galili's opinion in the Mishnah, and that is the Halakha, and he says you have to pay a hundred Tyrian coins, and therefore, since you have the witness, and we have the ruling, therefore go and pay a hundred Tyrian coins. So, let's say that's what it means. Well, according to that, uh, we then the the, the this rebuydan um, a is acting as both the witness and the judge. Is that allowed? Can the witness also be a judge? We have a rule that he cannot. And the rule is in, this, is in this Let's say you have a Sanhedrin sitting there, 23 judges, and right in front of the judges, someone goes and murders someone else. Not a very uh, smart idea to do. It's like you know committing a crime in the in the inside the police precinct. Okay, but someone does that. Now they're all judges. They can't all act as judges because you need witnesses and judges to be separate uh, um, separate roles. So what do, they, what do they do? Some of the judges will act as witnesses and they will testify before their colleagues and say, oh, uh, we saw this person murder and they'll be cross-examined and everything. You have to go through the whole regular thing um uh, uh the the regular ser, uh, uh system um even though they are the judges themselves so they have to separate now that's a be of fun. says no all of them are te- are witnesses and therefore none of them can be judges The they will have to find other judges who weren't there What's it be Akiba's reasoning? He thinks that the judges have to be uh, uh, unbiased. If the judge was there at the time and saw the thing happening, then they're already biased towards saying that this guy is a murderer. Um, and even though they, you know these are trustworthy people, certainly, nevertheless, a judge has to ha- actually has to be someone who wasn't there and didn't uh, witness what happened so that he can be impartial and then he can ask proper questions to the witness. Uh, what, you know, what did you see? What was his intention? What was going on uh, at the time? What did he use? And so the witness has to be, the judge has to be totally impartial uh, to, because maybe there is a different side of the story that if someone's a witness, to it, they will not bring um, bring out in their deliberation. Okay, now that's the machloket between the two. But you see, they agree on the fundamental principle. Even the Beit is more lenient here, and he says that um, some of the witnesses can act as judges. They just can't act as both witnesses and judges at the same time. Um, uh, but you know, some of the witnesses will testify. And some of the, those who were witnesses will not testify what will act as judges. But even a fun, um agrees that a witness cannot be also a judge in at the very in the very same case at the very same time. And so here, how could he be the witness and then be the judge and say, "Oh well, I'm the witness," and you know cross-examine himself and uh, and therefore give a judgment should not be allowed. Of course, not for the biakiva, but even for the bi tarfon, it wouldn't be allowed. And the answer is, kitanya hahi uba laila de ninhu. this case of the this praita, where of the murder, that's where the murder happened at night. Since it's at night. It's not, you're not allowed to judge at night, um, and so at night they're acting only as witnesses. Therefore, when it comes daytime, now there is a problem because they can't be witnesses and judges. They can't be judges um, to uh, cross-examine themselves as witnesses also. So there, Rabbi Akiva says you have to get totally new judges, and Rabbi Tarfon says you have to pick pick a, a role. You could be judges or witnesses, but not both. But that's because it happened at night. Whereas this this story of Rabbiudas Nisiyah happened during the day. Now during the day, you, one can be a judge. So Rabiudanisiyah watching this, he's watching it as a judge. And the judge, how does he know what ha- what what happens? Right, he relies on witnesses. But if he himself sees it, while he's a judge that's okay right in other words a judge can be a witness as long as he is a judge at the time that he sees the item happening when we say a judge can't cannot be a witness that's only talking about where the person witnessed it at night when they're not a judge and now they're going to be a second role of being a judge about their own testimony that's not allowed but if they see something as uh, in, in their role as a judge and they see it directly then that's okay. And that's what Rabbi Yoseha Nasi, did. That's all one interpretation. Or a much simple explanation that doesn't get into this whole problem is that Rabbi Yudan said, here behold, I am, and I agree with Rabbi Yoseha In other words, here I'm here the judge and I, as the judge, I decided, that the falacha follows follows him and that you have to pay 100 tyrian coins and there were also there were also witnesses witnesses are separate people right so i am here i follow the pin of the the witnesses are right right next to me and they said that you did this and therefore you have to pay the 100 tyrian coins The Gamada next follows up on this law that a witness cannot also be a judge. Is it true that Rabbi Akiba agrees that a witness cannot be a judge? Look at the following but ayta v'ika ish et der i hope even or be a graph ma a graph mi ochad she masod la dav la idim of course she masod la de she yasta mitakha jed ha idim the pasuk talks about if a person hits someone else with a stone or a fist um if they get better then, and they, then they later die, the, then the, the person who hit is not, is not responsible. But if they die from that hit from by a stone or by a fist, then the person who hits them is liable. So now why does it specify these examples of a stone or a fist? Shimada Timni, uh, Timni explains, just like a fist is something unique in that it is right there, it's attached to the body of the perpetrator, of the assailant, and therefore, something that the Adam means the judges. The judges can come and examine it, as well as the Adim can also come and examine it. And they can look and see if this fist, is it likely that this fist hitting a person would cause death? Um, if not, if it's just a small fist and, uh, the, and the person died, I guess maybe they're exceptionally weak, um, then the uh, aggressor is not, uh, is not liable. Um, but if they see this is a big fist and uh, this is something that could cause death, to this victim, then the person is liable. So too, uh, any all evidence, any of uh, a weapon that's used has to be something that is available to the judges as well as to the witnesses. The witnesses are there. And so they see the weapon, but also has to be brought into court so that the judges can examine the stone or the knife or whatever it is. And this excludes something that left the possession of the witnesses. And it's not around anymore. He right, threw away the, the rock, threw away the gun, and it's not there um, uh, uh, that, uh, that can be analyzed by the court itself. So that's what Shimana Timni says. Not only the witnesses, but also the judges of the court have to be able to Uh, examine the weapon. Rabbi rejects this, and he says, what, did the did the um, assailant strike him in the presence of the court? That they would know any of the other details? Like, how hard did he strike him? Um, did he strike him on the thigh, where it would not be uh, deadly? Or on the lobe of his heart? It might be a, a, an area near his heart, or it could be on his throat. Uh, it would be a place would be very sensitive so the the weapon or fist itself is not only what's significant how big the stone is that he used but all the other details are equally important to know if the act of the assailant was one that would normally cause death that, but you need to know all these things, and the judges obviously aren't, weren't there and don't know any of that. So just like there's no way that the judges can directly know any of the other actions of how hard he hit and where he hit, um, but they rely on the witnesses, so too regarding the weapon, the size of the weapon, the stone. Um, they don't have to see it themselves, they rely on the witnesses. And furthermore, there are cases where someone will kill someone else without a, a weapon, but rather uh, by pushing him off the top of a roof or from the, off the top of a building. Um, so now what? Betin has to see the weapon. In this case, the weapon is the t- is the building. Do the judges have to go out to the to the building, or do they bring? Maybe they bring the building in, into court, right, so that they can examine it. i, keep, I being very sarcastic here, right? And what if that building has uh, fallen down? Should they rebuild the building? the same way it was so that the judges could go out and see how tall it was, what's the slope, right? What's the angle um, and, and decide if this pushing off someone off this building is likely to cause death or not. Obviously, this is ridiculous. And therefore, just like we do not need the judges to know uh, the, the details of how hard he hit or how tall the building was or anything like that, the judges don't examine that directly. They rely on the witnesses, so too, for the size of the uh, of the weapon uh, of the stone the judges are to rely on the witnesses and it doesn't have to be there in court directly so He says, how to be Akiba rejects Rabbi Shim'on Hatimni now here's the uh, question rather just like a fist is something that is submitted to the witnesses. The witnesses can see the fist of the assailant. So too, um, whatever uh, weapon that is used, the, uh, the witnesses have to be able to testify that they saw that this uh, knife that he used or that the rock he used is, is one that could kill, is likely to kill, and therefore that person is liable. Only the witnesses have to know but not the judges. This would exclude a case where. The stone is now long, no longer in the possession of the assailant, and we don't know where it is, and even the witnesses didn't see it. They didn't have the, quite the angle they saw from behind, and they didn't see the, um, uh, the the stone itself. If the stone is still there and then they can go and see it, that's fine. But if he hit someone and threw it away, and we don't know where the stone is, even the witnesses don't know where it is, then the person example exempt. But as long as the witnesses can, can uh, uh, identify the stone, and saw that it was one that is big enough to kill a person that's all you need and not the judges okay that's all what it be said now here's the question katani mehata mother back about him if they've been a batin if they've been a bit in the in questioning of the bisham on he said um, rhetorically, right? Um, did the what well, did the did the uh, striking happen in front of Bedin? That they know how he how hard he hit him. So he said, you know, it didn't happen, and that's why. Obviously, the Betin does not have to witness it. But we can infer from that question that, let's say, the judges, in fact, were present at the time of the uh, injury, then they could be witnesses to it as well as judges. So, doesn't that mean that according to the B'Akibah, a witness can also be a judge? And the answer is no. The B'Akibah was only saying a statement in accordance with the opinion of Rabbi Shimon Natimni. They were speaking, uh, they were taking uh, Rabbi Shimon Natimni's assumption, and Rabbi was taking it ad absurdum. If you think that the judges have to know, um, have to see the uh, the weapon, uh, then, or, or do they? Ha- well, they're not there. What about everything else? Wouldn't they have to witness everything else? Um, right? Are they there? Are they present that they would be able to witness everything? Um, obviously not. So this was just part of an argument against Shimon Timni, but i keep by himself, does not think that they need to be there and in fact thinks that they cannot be there. If the judges are present at the injury, then they are witnesses, and then they, they are disqualified from being judges. So, in fact, Rabiakiva, uh, does not think that witnesses can be judges. Now, uh, last related halacha tenor banan short shemit vihizik. Danino todi ne nefashot ven danino todine ne mamonot a short that did two things it killed someone and it uh, caused monetary damage in two separate incidents now for killing someone even the short time will get the capital punishment uh for doing damage the owner has to pay half the amount of the damage but only from the body of the short time uh itself he doesn't have to pay any more than the short time itself is worth so now since the short time did two things So does he? Is the owner going to be liable both of those for both of those things? And the answer is no. He's uh, you bring in the the ox to be judged for capital punishment, but not for monetary. Why? Uh, Because once it's judged for capital punishment, now it's already. It's like if it's deemed to be liable. So now it's going to be sentenced to death. The ox and the ox therefore is not worth any money because it's going to be killed Um, and so once it's not worth any money so then the owner will not have to pay any anything from the body of the ox and he doesn't have to pay anything out of pocket because his. Monetary liability is limited to the value of the ox, and now that the ox is going to be killed, it's not worth anything. Uh, However, for Shon Mu'ad, who does, also does two things, it kills someone and causes damage, Shon Mu'ad also gets capital punishment for killing. And for the, the monetary damage, shur Mu'ad, there's unlimited liability of the owner. The owner has to pay from the best of his land. It's not limited to the body of the animal. And therefore, in that case, you'd bring the, the oxen for judgment first of the monetary amount that it, that, that, that it um, uh, did. And the owner has to be present for of, uh, whenever his ox is being uh, uh, judged, and then you bring it again for the uh, killing. And that way the owner will have to pay for the damages and also will then, um, if it's found guilty, the ox will be killed. But the other way around, the other order is not, will not work. Um, If they first bring him in for judgment for capital punishment, and then that's it, it's going to be killed, you cannot then bring it in for judgment for a monetary case. And the question is why? Even if they first bring it in for capital for the capital punishment, uh, so what? So let them bring it in also for dinay mamonot. What's what's the problem? Rava says, "I found this. The sages." of the yeshiva and they were sitting and they explained the halacha as follows this is the author of this who says just like a fist is something that is available Um, to the judges and to the witnesses so too whatever it did the damage has to be available to the judges and the witnesses Uh, witnesses of course everybody agrees to that but his chidush is has to be available to the judges applying that to this case the ox um, that uh, that uh, killed um, uh, or injured has to be available to the judges to examine the ox. And herein is the problem. Al So we need the bedin to come and evaluate This ox, right? What kind of uh, uh, ox is it? How big is it? Is it likely that it would have uh, killed? That it would have caused damage? But this ox, once they judge it for capital punishment, so it has to be killed. It has to be killed right away because we cannot delay judgment. This is a law for capital case for human beings that if human being is is, uh, declared they deserve capital punishment it's not right to delay it psychologically a person uh, knows he's going to be killed and you delay it you know even even uh, a week even even a day Uh, then he's suffering uh, that whole time. And even though the person is liable capital punishment, we want to be merciful and kill him right away. Now, this really technically wouldn't apply to an animal because the animal doesn't know that it was just um, given a verdict of capital punishment. But nevertheless, we compare the two and we say this applies to an animal as well. And so, therefore, if you judge the animal for capital punishment first, then we cannot go into delay it and we're going to kill it right away and it won't be available for the Bet-Din to examine. And Abishimona Timni says that the thing that did the damage, the ox, has to be available to the bet dean um, during the uh, process, during the court case, and it won't be available for the monetary court case. But if you do it the other way around, then that's fine. They'll examine it for the monetary case, decide, okay, you have to pay $1,000, and then they'll bring it back in and decide the capital case that way works. Now Rava heard that uh, re- re- that explanation, and he said, <speaking in Hebrew> I can explain this, but not only according to be but even according to the Akiva, who does not think that the weapon, that the ox needs to be there. And we're talking about a case where the owner ran away. In other words, he, uh, but, but, uh, the, 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 the animal was decided of cap- capital punishment, and then it was going to be brought in for um, monetary uh, payment, for monetary uh, judgment, and he knew, he realized he was going to have to pay a lot of money, so the owner ran, ran away, and you can't judge a case without the owner there. Another question is, well, in the case where they did the monetary first, and you said, oh, that's okay, you could do the monetary first, um, uh, if they didn't do the Dinei shot yet, how can they even do the monetary, even if the monetary is first, without the owner? In other words, assuming that the owner runs away, he runs away in both, in, in both cases, no matter whether the Mamanot was first or last. So then how would they ever judge him, uh, judge the Mamanot at all if he runs away? And the answer is that the, the, the witnesses came in when the owner was there. And the judges heard the, heard the testimony, so they, they did most of the procedure while the while the uh, te- while the uh, while he was there, and that's fine. So the procedure goes goes well, uh, but the problem is that he runs away and then can't pay anything because um, he, took, he takes all his property, um, so all they have is the ox there, so there's, uh, there's nobody to pay. Since there's nobody to pay, there's no point in uh, going ahead with the judgment, with the monetary judgment. Uh, so in the end, so how is anybody going to pay anything? If the if the owner ran away, and the answer is from plowing, uh, they'll have the since they have the ox, they'll rent out the Betin will rent out the ox until it generates enough money to pay for the damages. Well, if that's true, then we can apply the same thing to a short tam, right? Why would you say that a short time only has the capital judgment, but there's no monetary judgment at all? Why not do the same thing and uh, let it uh, be uh, judged for the monetary damages that it caused and rent it out? And it'll uh, produce from itself, right? This is from the body still of the animal, and it will produce enough money to pay for the damages. And then after that, you judge it for the capital case, and then you go and take it out to be killed. So why can't, for a short time, you do both? Son of Rafkana explains that we learn from here that. Ploughing is considered the same as the aliyah, the superior land of the owner. In other words, the when, when for a short time the there is limited liability, the owner only has to pay up to the value of the body of the animal, right? Take the animal and sell it on the market, and that's the max he has to pay whereas the use of the animal for plowing, that's above and beyond the value of the body of the shortam. That is similar to the owner having to pay from his own pocket or from the superior land that he has. Right, Whatever he has, he has to use to pay for injury, which is only true for a short Muad, not for a short time. And therefore, this uh, idea of uh, paying both um, by having the animal plow and even if the owner ran away, having it plow, and only then giving it capital punishment, that only can apply to a short muad. But for a for a shor tam, um, you one only pays from the body of the animal. And therefore, once you do the once there's capital punishment, then the animal is worth zero. So there is going to be nothing to pay for the damages. Baruch Adonai leolam. Amen v'amen.